We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. When we look forward to a Gaza that has a higher GDP, it doesn't mean more power for Hamas. It means that a regime that would actually allow GDP to go that high will not be Hamas. If Israel ends the blockade of Gaza and we try to do economic aid for Gaza and all this stuff, if Hamas is still in power, they're going to grab it and they're going to use it for munitions and GDP will not double. All right. We need to double like the median income consumption of average people. Basically, we're starting to see a more violent world. With the collapse of Pax Americana, we're starting to see countries feel safe going to war in a way they didn't before. So we need to make sure that the damage to us on the day, if and when that happens, the damage to us and our economy and our you know, military is as little as possible. So the first thing we, that, that needs to happen is companies, right? So, so a lot of companies are sitting there sort of just hoping that nothing goes down between China and Taiwan. And a few companies are starting to move some production out of China, like Apple, right, moving to India. If you think that this couldn't happen, then then your your head is in the sand. Welcome to Econ 102, where economist Noah Smith and I make sense of what's happening in the news, technology, business, and beyond through the lens of economics. Let's jump right in. Noah, uh Welcome. We're on the off the heels of our most popular uh, episode yet last week on uh, on Israel um, and uh, the sort of conflict and situation going on there. Um, good to see you again. Great to see you. Uh, you know, sorry, it has to be under such um, grim yeah. circumstances. Yeah. Is is there any? We're going to get to your uh, China and Taiwan piece, uh, but is there any further commentary? You know, a, a week or so has passed. Um, you know, it seems like things are starting to escalate now um, in, in in Gaza. And any noteworthy uh, thing saying here before besides before going back to the China situation? Well, I mean, you know, Israel's response is is pretty brutal, uh, as we all expected. And I think that the United States has done a decent job of uh, using diplomacy to restrain Israel from doing the most brutal things it could have done, like cutting off water to the territory and just like, you know. Um, so so we're having some. There, there's, there's, uh, a, you know, a hospital was bombed and Israel claims it was a non Hamas group that bombed it by accident, but I don't know how credible that claim is. You know, I mean, <clears throat> Occam's razor suggests they just bombed it and there were a bunch of kids inside. It's a really terrible situation. And, um, you know, uh, I think America should continue to apply as much diplomacy as we can to try to get Israel to be less brutal. But I think it really reinforces what I said at the end of our podcast last time, which is that the people and countries in the Middle East understand brutality much more than they understand, you know, other purposes of warfare and conflict. So I think that there's this idea of if we're just tougher, if we're meaner to them, then 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 we win this day's round and then tomorrow we'll fight again. But it's just this idea of eternally repeated conflict. And if you have eternally repeated conflict, then, uh, then you just want to be as brutal as you can today because you know it's never going to end. Whereas I think in, in the U.S. we think, okay, we're, whether we're brutal or not, we have been very brutal at times. Um, 
you know, uh, in terms of bombing kids in hospitals and whatnot. Like we did that to Japan. We did that to Germany. We did that to uh, North Vietnam and North Korea and um, et cetera. And only in recent decades have we stopped doing that mostly, although we still occasionally do it. But um, but we've stopped doing it on purpose, uh, we claim. And um, yeah. and I think that we have this idea that war ends, that there's this end point where after that, we don't fight each other anymore. I think that our wars have borne that out. If you look at, you know, Vietnam, we're not at war with Vietnam. We're friends with Vietnam now, right? If you look at, um, you know, Iraq, I wouldn't necessarily say that we're friends with Iraq, but Iraq is at least not going to be an enemy anytime soon to us. Yeah. Um, and so I think that we have this, this feeling that war ends and yeah. we, we fight to end the war and get back to a state of peace. But I feel like in the Middle East, they just don't understand that there's such a thing as a state of peace. And, you know, to be honest, if you read the Bible, it's all about Iran and Israel fighting. So you know, like maybe they have a point. But still, I think that this this idea of we just have to be the most brutal today because war will never end tomorrow is a short term you know, strategy that is just suboptimal and traps everyone in a bad equilibrium of brutality and, and horror. Um, it makes me really mad to see Western people condemning acts of horror because you're in America and you should know better. But then, you know, um, I think that in the Middle East, there needs to be a mindset shift toward the idea that there will not be war at some point. Yeah. The, um, there was this idea I was exposed to at some point, which is like, I mean, you, you actually mentioned it in the, our, our, our last episode around a strong America means um, a, more, a more perhaps peaceful global situation. And, and people tend to think that um, or don't tend to appreciate how sometimes strength and peace can be associated, uh, can be correlated. They think, oh, someone who's stronger than anyone else, that, that could be a risk. And in fact, we need to you know, sort of uh, diversify the power. But once you get rid of, say, Saddam Hussein, you know, someone who's sort of keeping uh, things um, strong, um, or keep things solid because of the the threat of of of, of force and, and power that that he had, um, actually becomes a more unstable uh, region, um, and so um, yeah. that's something that's not intuitive. Yeah. There, I think there's two things there. You talked about Saddam; he was a strongman ruler. He toppled a strongman ruler, um, and then things can disintegrate. That's absolutely a possibility. But I think the other different thing that you were talking about earlier is the idea that if America is strong, America will not be a responsible policeman or keep the peace or anything who will instead throw its weight around and start wars. And the answer to that is uh, eventually it probably will. Um, we've been in a position of sort of peak power twice in the world, once after World War II and once after the Cold War. And those were the time, the apex of our global power and influence. And both those times we entered wars, we entered some wars that we should have entered. Uh, we helped defend South Korea from attack by North Korea and China. Um, and we, um, you know, we helped defend uh, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia from Iraq uh, in, in 1991. But both those times after those sort of successes, we then overreached and got into wars we should not have and threw our weight around where we shouldn't have and caused a lot of destruction in the process. Uh, Vietnam War, which killed literally millions. Um, and then uh, the Iraq War, um, which by the best estimates I can tell, killed about half a million people. And so... We, we did, you know, like I, I support the Afghanistan where I think we need to get bin Laden, but Iraq was obviously just a mistake and, and even a crime, I would say. And, and Vietnam was a mistake. I mean, it's not a, you know, crime to support, you know, a proxy nation against another, but it's, but it's um, because they did invite us, right? We didn't just invade them, but it was, it, what we did was wrong. 
you know, it was a mistake. And, um, and so, yes, you know, there is a danger in having America be the hegemon. I think, <clears throat> I think that that danger is less now because America will never be the sole hegemon again. We had two periods where we were two unipolar moments, uh, one right after World War II and the other uh, right after the Cold War. And I think that both those times we screwed it up and now it's, it's clear we would screw it up if we had it again, but it won't happen again. Because I don't think, I think the United States is now, will never again be strong enough to be the hegemon by ourselves. And the only way we'll be a hegemon is with a large gang of, of like-minded powers, which could include a, a more unified Europe, which could include India, Japan, um, and you know maybe some some other big developing countries on the horizon. But those three, essentially, basically, if there's another liberal hegemon, it will not be America. It'll be America, Europe, India, and Japan as a block. And, uh, and that will be... Um, I don't know if that can happen or will happen, but if it did happen, I imagined it would not lead to Iraq style wars because the Europeans tried to restrain us and stop us from going into Iraq and we didn't. If we didn't have the power to do that kind of thing on our own without the help of the Europeans, they would have much more success in restraining us and India would restrain us and Japan would restrain us and these other countries, our allies would restrain us from, from doing that. And we wouldn't have the power to go alone like we did with a coalition of the willing. So I think um, I'm less worried about future, uh, quote unquote, American hegemony, because it would really be much more of a multilateral hegemony than a unilateral hegemony next time around. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I also want to address another point you made in the, the podcast and you, and you in a tweet you made that went super viral around doubling Gazan's GDP. And I'm, I'm curious, where would you not want to double someone like would you want to double um sort of, you know, Nazi Germany's GDP, like at some point there is a, a society or leadership at least that's dedicated to sort of, you know, uh, eliminating a certain group of people in the case of Nazi Germany and also in the case of Hamas. Um, you know, are, are there scenarios where you, you think doubling GDP would only enable them to do the, the, the thing, what they want to do, but um, just easier, like, uh, you know, Bin Laden or Al-Qaeda, you know, of course. Well, okay, so, so um, I think that, you can say, would we want to double Nazi Germany's GDP? Well, you know, no. But would we want to double Germany's GDP? During the Nazi regime, would we look forward to a future where the Nazis didn't rule Germany and their GDP doubled? Absolutely. And that is what happened. Like, if you look at post-war Germany, the, the, the economic miracle was absolutely great, right? And then, um, and, you know, let's not pretend it was all different people than under the Nazis either. We, we executed the high-level people, but the low-level people stayed in place. There were former Nazis all over Germany helping to run things. And, yeah, they were bad people for participating in the Nazi effort. But the ultimately, Germany, you know, we didn't do a, a, a purge like we tried to do in Iraq where we debathified the whole country and anyone competent. Because Saddam Hussein was a strongman ruler. We'd gotten all these, you know, reasonably competent people to work for him. And we purged them all. And then they went and became terrorists and fought us for the next eight years or whatever. And that was a bad idea. Uh, the, the fact is, even if you get rid of the bad guys at the top, the bad guys lower down have to stay because like they were the ones who knew how to run the country. And that's a, um, and so, so when we look forward to a Gaza that has a higher GDP, it, that doesn't mean more power for Hamas. It means that, you know, a, a, a regime that would actually allow GDP to go that high will not be Hamas, right? If we, if we, if God, if, if Israel ends the blockade of Gaza and we try to do economic aid for Gaza and all this stuff, 
if Hamas is still in power, they're going to grab it and they're going to use it for munitions and GDP will not double. All right. We need to double like the median income consumption of average people. And then Hamas will not allow that. They, you know, there, there's these videos of Hamas guys uh, ripping up water pipes to use for rockets, right? I guess who's cutting off the water now? It's you. Like, um, there, there, this is a, there's a longstanding literature about foreign aid getting appropriated by strongman governments and militia, local militias, and then not helping countries. Uh, usually this is in the context of, you know, sort of dysfunctional post-colonial regimes like Africa. We'd, you know, there would be some African country that when Britain left it, they just combine these two tribes into one country and then they'd fight each other. And then we try to give them foreign aid and one or the other of the competents would just grab the aid, right? And this is Rwanda too, the Hutus and Tutsis. It's a very common story. Um, they would just grab the aid because they had no sense of social obligation to use that aid to enrich their populace. And so, you know, GDP didn't go up. Um, by the way, uh, foreign aid is not counted in GDP. So if I give you a dollar of foreign aid, that does not increase your GDP at all. Um, what we, but what we need, you know, focusing on GDP may be a little beside the point. What we need to do is double the, the consumption possibilities of the average Gazan. It's not going to happen under Hamas. And the industries that they need to foster, such as tourism, right? Like Gaza has all these nice beaches. Okay, you can look up photos of Gaza beaches. They look great. They're Mediterranean beaches. They look awesome. You know, that is where rich people from UAE, right, will come to hang out on the beach with their family, right? That is where, yeah, like rich people from, from Europe will come to like experience the beaches of Gaza or whatever, and then, and then eat Gazan food and, and hang around Gaza City and see where, you know, Israel used to bomb or something. Or, um, you know, uh, religious uh, sites and, and whatnot, you know, there'll be a lot of religious tourism as well. Um, I'm sure there'll be plenty of mosques. Um, and so, so that tourism industry is just one example, right? There's other industries you can have. I could name them, but tourism is so easy to spin up and it costs so little. Um, so you, um, without, with Hamas still in charge of Gaza, there will be no tourist industry, right? Because are you going to go to a place ruled by a militia that's constantly starting wars to go to the beach? Well, no. I mean, in Russia, yes, some people went to the Crimean beaches, even knowing that they were starting a war with Ukraine. But I think that that's not typical. You know, that's not um, it's not typically you build a tourism industry. And so having Hamas either, you know, not be in charge of Gaza or turn over a completely new leaf. Right. Uh, would um, would be a prerequisite to that sort of GDP boom that I imagine. OK, so I'm, I want the people of Gaza to be wealthy, but that in fact, that is not going to mean that Hamas just gets a bunch of money. And that means, yes, it's possible that a government of Gaza would use that money to go to war with Israel in the future. Absolutely possible, right? Um, maybe not Hamas or maybe not Hamas in its current incarnation, but some leaders of Gaza. So like you see this all the time when Russia got a bunch of oil money under Putin, right? And their consumption, basically their GDP doubled. And then they thought, oh, wow, we've got some, we've got some wealth and power. Let's go take this out for a spin. Right. And then they then they attacked Georgia and then they attacked Ukraine and attacked Ukraine again and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so then they did that. They took it out for a spin. And you see this sometimes you, you saw um, when Japan and Germany got rich, they got very aggressive. Um, it absolutely can happen. And, if you, and Gaza in the future may decide to start a war with Israel with the money that they get from having higher GDP. And you know what? That is the right of a sovereign state. That's that's you're allowed to do this. Like France did this. Germany did this. America did this. Right. We started wars. We, we were less likely to start wars. We were, 
um, but overseas. But then we did sometimes, right? We did, you know, Spanish American war, we threw our weight around. So if you're saying like, let's not do growth because people might start a war. Well, then, then that's just keeping every, hoping that you can keep everyone too poor to fight a war forever. Yeah. And you can't. Well, right? I'm, I'm just saying maybe Israel should dedicate itself to growth in Gaza as a way to release, um, as a way to encourage more peace because it could perhaps encourage more violence. Um, depending well, on how... I think they should, because honestly, like a poor Gaza is perfectly capable of attacking Israel. Right. A rich Gaza might be more capable of attacking Israel, but would probably want to less. Um, especially if Israel had a hand in, in helping Gaza to, to, you know, boost its GDP. Yeah. Um, the reason the Arab countries are trying to make peace with Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia only forestalled doing that because of the optics around this war. The reason they're doing that is because Israel's become important to their economy. You know, Israel's become a big source of capital. The yeah. Israel does a bunch of like tech startups and tech companies and things. And then, then they get a bunch of money and then they invest that in the Arab countries. Yeah. Uh, they invest in Egypt and Saudi Arabia and UAE and all these Qatar and all these countries like they invest. And so that's why these countries, you know, which used to hate Israel and, and want to destroy them and, you know, whatever. Now they're like, oh, no, actually, we, we like you. You give us money. And um, uh, so I, I think that in the in the future, we can imagine Gaza's that uh, Vietnam certainly has become a lot less warlike recently. Um, so it doesn't always work, right? Like America's idea was that we're going to get, we're going to help China get rich and China will become more peaceful, right? Well, that maybe that worked or maybe it didn't. I mean, China is less warlike than it was under Mao, right? But, but under Mao, I would say it, it didn't work, right? It's a big, it's a threat to us. Um, it's a threat. It's absolutely yeah. a threat, but it's, but it's China's desire to, to start wars has decreased. It is not zero. It's still very high. Even if its power to prosecute wars has increased. So it may be necessary for China to start some more wars and get burned by that in order to figure out once and for all that starting wars is bad and you should just sit there and play video games and be a happy, rich country. <laughs> that may take some time, right? It may take, it may take more failures and more wars, but I think that the, the, the poor China under Mao was a constant source of, of um, destabilization in the region. They, you know, they, they, gotten they invaded vietnam they invaded korea they fought with the soviet union they did a bunch of other stuff they did all these you know they 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 did proxy wars and like they supported the khmer rouge they supported the the laotian guys who were sort of like the khmer rouge they um just yeah got involved in a bunch of proxy wars they're a very warlike country they conquered tibet mao's china was very warlike modern china is like a little bit warlike but like it's it's much more powerful but it's it's not quite as rabid. Like if you had kept China in, in Maoist poverty forever, they would have just kept periodically attacking places. Yeah. So I don't think our strategy entirely failed. I think it just, it didn't succeed nearly as well as we hoped. And it didn't succeed enough to prevent more conflict. But I think that the alternative of keeping, of keeping China poor in like Maoist poverty would have ultimately had a higher likelihood of fostering conflict in the future and on and on into infinity. I associate the idea of keeping a country poor in the hopes that it, just expecting it to always start more wars and more wars, but keeping it poor because you expect war to go on forever. I associate this with what I think of as the Middle Eastern viewpoint of like, well, yeah, wars are going to go on forever, so you might as well keep you poor. Yeah. And I associate and I, the I, idea of getting rich so that war stop with the Western viewpoint. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting. I, 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 for me, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. I, I sympathize with, with the lack of desire to 
for you know for Israel to invest in a, in a in a place that has leadership that might be sworn in you know uh, to eliminate them. Uh, that said, I'm excited about what's been happening in Saudi Arabia and some other sort of Arabic you know countries uh, neighboring by in terms of Israel's collaboration with them. And on China, I'm a bit more mixed. It's hard to know what the counterfactual uh, would have been otherwise. It feels like we we enabled a threat, but also as you say, maybe they're less uh, less likely um, to to instigate. Hey everybody, Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Let's transition, uh, as it happens, to your your other piece um, that that went pretty viral, or or went you know uh, well among your paid audience um, on on China and Taiwan. Why don't you uh, unpack your argument there? Oh, um, so basically, we're starting to see a more violent world with the collapse of Pax Americana. Um, we're starting to see countries feel safe going to war in a way they didn't before. So Russia invading Ukraine is the obvious one. Um, Iran getting more involved in the Israel war, maybe, or green lighting a Hamas attack, maybe. Um, although I think we we sent two aircraft carriers to the region and sort of bullied Iran and threatened them. And, and I think they're holding off because of that. So I think there is some, still some Pax Americana power in place. It's not completely gone. It's not, it's not completely collapsed. It's, let's say, heavily eroded. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's dying, right? Um, and then... Uh, and we're seeing small wars start as well. We're seeing Azerbaijan, you know, potentially invading Armenia after doing ethnic cleansing in an, a, you know, an enclave near Armenia. Um, we are seeing um, Serbia might attack Kosovo uh, while NATO is distracted. And, um, and, and we're seeing, of course, you know, we haven't yet seen China attack places. They had that skirmish with India, but that's about it. And then they're doing some like, you know, sort of low level stuff with the Philippines. But, um, what we haven't seen is we, we're seeing a world erupt in these little conflagrations of war, right? And the places that could erupt and didn't erupt before are now erupting. So Russia, Ukraine, you know, Israel, Iran, and, um, and now, but, but we're all sort of waiting for the big one, right? These, these fundamentally are not that threatening because Russia had, had Russia been much more effective of a country and much more effective of an invader, had they, conquered Ukraine, right? That would have been a much, much more terrifying situation because what would be next on the menu? The Baltic states, right? Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, those states are NATO. It could have, um, you know, opened the door to a direct Russia-NATO confrontation, which theoretically could have even gone nuclear. And um, and that would have been really bad. And so I'm, I'm really glad that didn't happen. Ukrainians saved us from that. They stopped it, you know? And of course we saved us by giving arms to the Ukrainians. <laughs> Um, but then the Ukrainians stopped the Russians and the Russians ended up not being very good at war. And so, um, so it wasn't the big one, you know, but then, but in terms of the big one, it's, it's China, you know, invading Taiwan. It could also, China could also do some attacks in the South China Sea, attack our fleet in the South China Sea, something like that. Uh, they could also support like a North Korean attack on South Korea. I don't think those are nearly as likely. I think Taiwan is the biggie. Um, if you look, you know, the, the Chinese government talks constantly about invading and conquering Taiwan. They release videos showing exactly how they do it. I've seen two of those videos that the that state media released. Um, one released by the army itself. Um, she constantly says, get ready for war by this date. You know, it's like a couple of years, three years or something. And um, there has there ever been this telegraph to punch? I mean, the, the, the naval and air exercise around Taiwan have just been incredible. Like, 
just the, the huge constant pace of, of planes buzzing Taiwan and ships surrounding Taiwan and all this stuff. And it's just like, if you think that this couldn't happen, then, then your, your head is in the sand. What, what, what does that mean? Or what does that imply? Or, or, or what do we, what do we make from this? Or what, what are the biggest questions going forward? Um, as, 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 as this will play out. The first thing that I want to emphasize is that if China attacks Taiwan, uh, the United States is highly likely to enter the war and not for any of the reasons people typically bandy about. So usually people say, well, we have to go to war to defend Taiwan because it's defending democracy against invasion and defending the global order and blah, blah, blah. Maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't. Some people say, well, we have to go to war to defend Taiwan because TSMC, the company, is so economically important. And the answer is, no, we wouldn't start a big major war over that one company, uh, especially when some, you know, Intel views it as the competition. I don't know. Um, and so I don't think we'd start a war over TSMC. So people are like, okay, so we're not going to go to war to defend Taiwan. Bye-bye, Taiwan. Let the Asians fight, you know, let them do their own fighting and blah, 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 and we'll just stay out of it. That is another head in the sand sort of reaction because what the truth is that um, if China launches an invasion of Taiwan or any sort of like large scale attack that would leave them vulnerable, they will attack U.S. bases first and they will Pearl Harbor us. The reason being that imagine China, like amphibious landings are hard, right? You've got to have a whole bunch of little ships um, and, and they're very vulnerable. Okay. And you want to, the, the easiest way to destroy an invasion fleet is when it's trying to invade. So China sails their little invasion fleet over to the beaches of Taiwan. And then the United States has bases at Okinawa, at the Philippines, and also at Guam, which is a little farther away, but then especially Okinawa and the Philippines that are right next to Taiwan. And if we want, we can launch air assets, i.e. fighter bombers uh, with missiles to, uh, and we can also launch long range missiles of our own, but we can launch these air assets and we can sink the fleet and just take it out. And then China's like, what? They sunk our fleet. And they, they can go build another fleet, but it's massively humiliating, right? And Xi Jinping could find himself out. Like he's already failed so many times, right? He failed on COVID. He failed on the Belt and Road. He failed with real estate stuff. He failed with the industrial crackdown. And he's just failed with diplomacy. So he's failed so many times. And then that uh, getting your whole Taiwan fleet sunk would be the final straw, I think. And, uh, and some lower level party people would just have his head on a plate you know, and uh, hopefully not literally, but maybe you never know. Um, so then, so I think that that fear is intense. And so China may not think that we're definite to intercede in a war over Taiwan. They might think there's only a 20% chance that we do. Um, but whatever, they, I don't think they can afford to take that chance. It's, it's, it's too existentially risky for them, you know. And so I think that instead what they'll do is they'll attack those bases and they'll take them out with a ton of missiles. They'll just missile, 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 and just blast all our bases to smithereens, uh, which is why hopefully we're digging under the ground and burying some of those bases. So we'll have something left after they do that, but, but they'll Pearl Harbor us. And then once they do that, America is at war. Like there will be, you know, people who say, oh, we shouldn't go to war, even though they just killed thousands of our people will be persecuted in America. Like that's, that's how severe it'll be. So what should we do? <laughs> or, or, or you've alluded to a little bit, but, but say more about, you know, a, what a comprehensive policy or, or a comprehensive uh, strategy might look like. Uh, well, we need to get ready. 
uh, we need to make sure that the damage to us on the day, if and when that happens, the damage to us and our economy and our, you know, military is as little as possible. So the first thing we, that, that needs to happen is companies, right? So, so a lot of companies are sitting there sort of just hoping that nothing goes down between China and Taiwan. And a few companies are starting to move some production out of China, like Apple, right? Moving to India. Companies are going to have to move more production out of China, not because you can get all, you can't get all your production out of China typically. Basically, you have to at least produce in China for the Chinese market. And then, you know, they've got a lot of scale advantages. So, you know, sometimes the, the cheapest place to make 100 laundry baskets might be Mexico. And the cheapest place to make a million laundry baskets would be Shenzhen or something, right? Or Guangdong, I guess. Or maybe interior China at this point. So, but then the point is that they've got scale. And so a lot of places can't afford to move all their manufacturing out of China, right? They, um, they have to stay in to some degree. But if you... If you um, uh, if you diversify out of China, then if a war happens and cuts off your China sourcing, you can you can expand your non-China sourcing really fast, right? You can you can scale up, and you'll have some people who know how to build your laundry baskets or whatever your widgets are, or your your radios or your little ball bearings or whatever you're buying from China, right? Um, you'll have some people who know how to do it, and they can teach other people fast. And you can scale back up much quicker than if you have absolutely all your manufacturing in China. So companies need to diversify out of China. I mean, if you can quit it entirely fine, but like, I think just diversifying out of China is the, is the goal for these companies. And they need to stop just sitting there and hoping that, you know, just telling themselves, we would never go to war over Taiwan. Yes, we would, because China would attack us first. We'd go to war over us, all right? And, and so, yeah, so companies need to realize that. The second piece of that is that companies need to audit their supply chains. Because if I'm buying... You know, suppose I'm a, I am import laptops and I sell laptops, right? I'm Best Buy, who knows, right? I, I sell laptops and, I'm in, and I used to import made in China laptops and now I'm importing made in Vietnam laptops. Where are the parts for those laptops coming from? Where is the screen from? Where is the processor from? Where is the memory from? Where are these things, where is the wireless chip, whatever from, right? Where are all these things from? Where are the little casings from? The casings aren't that important. You know, you can probably just find some place to do casings, but like the idea of... Um, of uh, a lot of these special, highly specialized components, if they're if those specialized components are coming from China, you still get cut off. It doesn't matter if your thing has a made in Vietnam label on it. If the key, if the hard to replace stuff is coming from China, you are still importing from China just indirectly. And uh, this goes under the rubric of the entire concept called value added trade, which is to say that trade isn't just where stuff gets assembled; it's where the components come from too. And so, um, so. A lot of companies will have to do supply chain audits to figure out that they'll have to essentially build part, you know, at least one supply route that doesn't touch China, except for little things like casings or whatever, or screws that are like, you know, who cares? You can replace those easily. But like for all the, the hard to replace stuff, never touches China. And you'll have to figure out who are your suppliers' suppliers, right? So like maybe you have a, you're importing laptops and your laptop has some Chinese uh, made screens. And then you're like, okay, get the screens out of China. But those screens have a mineral that's processed in China. So you've got to audit these supply chains. And so this is beyond the skill of small companies. If you're Apple, you definitely have the capability to call up all your suppliers and find out where all their stuff comes from, call up their suppliers and blah, blah, blah. It's a matter of like a week of work for like a team. It's not, it's not hard. Um, well, okay, maybe not a week of work for a team for like one factory, but like it, it's, it's, it's not a... Um, 
it's not a gigantic amount of work for a large company, but for a small company, it's practically impossible. You just don't, you may not even have the connections with that factory that you need to like do that. And you may not have the personnel, blah, blah. Um, you may not have the expertise to like actually know what's in some of these components. You, know, you may not have the engineering expertise there. So, so someone needs to help small U.S. businesses and small Western businesses uh, do audits on their supply chains. And that has to be the U.S. government, I think. That's a good overview. Maybe let's zoom out because I think this is the first time we we're talking about Taiwan on the podcast. And you also linked to this great piece you wrote a year ago called Why I Think an Invasion of Taiwan Probably Means World War III. Maybe not everyone listening is super sophisticated or uh, has a great understanding of you know, just how intricate the Taiwan situation is. So why don't you give a little bit of a, of an overview of, of why there's such a, you know, conflict in, in, in the first place. Um, and then also why it's so strategic to, to, to the U S and how different, you know, camps have thought about how should, you know, how, how we should get involved or not get involved or how should we should, you know, think about that, that strategy. Why don't you just zoom out a little bit? Right. Well, realize, you know, I'm not an expert on geopolitics, so so may get some of this wrong. I've talked to a bunch of experts on geopolitics, but that doesn't mean I am one. Um, so anyway, the background here is that China claims that Taiwan is part of China. Uh, China is, Taiwan has never been part of the People's Republic of China. It was part of China for a couple centuries. Um, and then before that, it was just independent for most of its history. Uh, the United States, you know, has a, a one China policy, we call it, where we say that there's one China, but we do not uh, recognize um, China's claim to the island of Taiwan. So when we say one China, it doesn't mean we include Taiwan in that one China. Right. And so um, so that's where the United States is. And uh, previously, we had a policy called strategic ambiguity. And strategic ambiguity was is basically we're not going to say we're going to defend Taiwan, but we're not going to say we're not going to defend Taiwan. And we're so powerful that you don't want to risk it, right? You don't want to risk us defending Taiwan. So you're not, you're just not going to attack. You're going to back off. But at the same time, China could sort of, you know, save face with its populace by saying, you know, by saying, oh, look, America has the one China policy. So, you know, or they have strategic ambiguity. They, they're not allied with Taiwan. So we're not humiliated because Taiwan's kind of sort of still under our control, even though it's not really. And so they it gave them plausible deniability to maintain a, a, a frigid peace. Right. Um, and so then uh, um, that was called strategic ambiguity. We won't tell you what we're going to do. And strategic ambiguity always exists de facto in some sense, like you never exactly know what another country will do, but a firm commitment could be maybe more credible than a non-firm commitment, especially if you back it up by moving a bunch of military assets into the area. What happened was that China got a lot stronger, right? Because of its economic growth, uh, it has massively, massively, massively increased its GDP and its it's now the top manufacturer in the world. It's just this huge country. It used to be very poor. It's, not, it's now not very poor. And um, so then... China got much stronger and strategic ambiguity became less effective because the whole idea of strategic ambiguity is that we're going to make, um, we're going to make invading an unacceptable risk. The more powerful China got, the less of a risk that was, right? So the, the lower the chance of them actually losing a confrontation over Taiwan. And that meant that that was an incentive to get more sort of belligerent toward Taiwan. Um, and so, but that was also an incentive for America to drop the policy of strategic ambiguity. So what you see is that uh, after China started to get really aggressive in 2021, 
Um, Biden got up when he, he got in power and said, yes, America will fight to defend Taiwan. And he said that, I think, three times now explicitly. And each time his his staff came out and made a statement that our policy toward Taiwan has not changed. And all the newspapers report that statement as walking it back, right? Oh, you said nothing changed, so you walked it back. But what they're really saying is that we always would have defended Taiwan, and now we're just being more explicit about it. So um, the United States has a good chance of defending Taiwan um, in a, in a fight uh, simply because, well, for various reasons, but I think the biggest reason is that we feel that a successful Chinese conquest of Taiwan would threaten maritime freedom and the freedom of the seas. And, and the freedom of the seas is really the effective part of the global order. That's what lets us all get rich. Totally. That, that, that's a good overview. And is, is it worth going deeper on some of the other players um, in, in, involved, like uh, Japan um, and, and, and their sort of interests and, and potential approach? Absolutely. So, so Japan is really, you know, it's part of the same archipelago of islands that includes Taiwan. And when, if you control Taiwan, you can bomb Japan pretty easily and you can launch missiles at Japan pretty easily. Now, this is less of a deal than it used to be in the past because missile ranges have gotten longer. So now China could more easily bombard Japan even without Taiwan, just from the Chinese mainland without too much trouble. But it really increased, holding Taiwan really increases the amount of short range stuff you can use to hit Japan. And so Japan considers Taiwan important to its security. There's also the fact that if, if China sort of um, ruled Taiwan and, and had a free hand with its Navy in the area, they could blockade Japan. Everyone talks about the U.S. blockading China and, you know, how China relies on the outside world for 40 percent of its food. Well, Japan relies on the outside world for like 80 percent of its food. And like much more of its energy, Japan is much less self-sufficient in food and energy than Taiwan is. And or I'm sorry, than, than China is. It's much less self-sufficient. Um, and so they have to import so much stuff. They're super vulnerable to blockade and China owning Taiwan would make it much easier to blockade them. So. Tanner Greer, who's a sort of a geopolitical security analyst who also does like translation stuff. He, um, he wrote this great post called Losing Taiwan Means Losing Japan. And everybody read it and we were kind of skeptical. And then suddenly, recently, the defense ministry in Japan starts saying Taiwan is a core interest. We'll absolutely fight to defend Taiwan. Um, and, um, you know, uh, the, the prime minister has said the same. And you're seeing all these Japanese white papers, you know, defense white papers showing that like Taiwan's absolutely essential to the defense of Japan. So Japan wants to defend Taiwan too. And people need to remember Japan is our treaty ally, right? That doesn't mean that Japan could go launch some crazy war and we'd have to follow them. But it does mean that if Japan defends Taiwan from China and China attacks the Japanese homeland as retaliation, which they absolutely would, um, then we're in the war because then we have to defend Japan from attack. And that's what that's how alliances work. And that's um, you can say, well, those alliances got us into World War One. Well, yes, they did. And um, so so Japan and Japan's terror of having a China that rules Taiwan will be another factor pulling the United States into this war. And that's that's not something I'm complaining about and saying we should cut ties with Japan. I'm saying like that's how important it is for us to stand by our allies and help build up our own deterrence. So that our, you know, Japan doesn't have to like fight alone or or do a military buildup alone, right? Because if Japan has to do a military buildup alone, there's no chance they can equal China's military spending, right? China's just so much bigger than them. There's no chance they can spend the same. If you were a small country trying to ward off a possible domination by a larger country, what would you do? It's a it's a tough situation. Um, 
you'd get nukes, man. <laughs> yeah. And Japan could get nukes tomorrow. Right. Like they've got all the material from the nuclear reactors that they could process uh, more to make, you know, nuclear bomb cores. And then, they, you know, they, they understand the nuclear bomb designs are easy for them to build with all the stuff they have. Um, they could really build, and, and they've maintained that capability intentionally. They don't have nukes, but they could build nukes really fast. And, um, and they would. If, if the United States was no longer a guarantor of their security, then nuclear weapons would be the only guarantor of their security. And they would build them. And then we have a nuclear standoff. Yeah, it's hard to, your, like, it's hard to imagine. Let's say this war put, turned out, like, how would a U.S.-China war end? That's, your guess is as good as mine, but... How, how does war between major powers end? Yeah, just peace treaty, I guess? Yeah, peace treaty. Global annihilation. <laughs> Global annihilation or, or a peace treaty. Yeah, one or the other. Maybe we would seek, sink the Chinese invasion fleet and they'd just build another and try again and the war would drag on for a long time. Maybe it would just become an all-out conventional war where they try to like destroy all our Pacific assets and our fleet and everything and then bomb Japan and all this stuff. Um, or it could become a nuclear war, in which case uh, they will bomb at least the West Coast. We'll die. Um, you and I will be dead. And then um, some other people will be dead. And they might bomb the whole United States, nuke the whole United States. And that this is the worst case scenario. Um, they don't have that many nukes, but they upkeep them much better than Russia does. Russia has like 1,500 deployed nukes on paper and then some stockpile of like 4,000 more or something. Like, no, they don't. Shut up. Like most of the stock, that stockpile doesn't work. Yeah. Those nukes in that stockpile. Russia has like, you know, maybe it has a lot fewer nukes that work than you think. And China does not. China's nukes will work because they were recently built because they're very good about maintaining them. It's interesting because... You know, people, people like uh, Steven Pinker will, you know, talk about how things have gotten so much less violent over the past, you know, since World War II, or et cetera. And in, in, in sort of a kinetic energy, you know, way, yes, that's certainly true. There's less, less wars, et cetera. Um, but from a potential energy way, um, uh -huh. you know, like more countries, like in, in some ways, the potential for that violence to emerge is, is just so much higher. Um, and, and so that's it's, right. Um, that's right. Yeah. Because of nukes. Yeah. I mean, nukes keep the peace, but then put you at risk of big war. Yeah. Yep. Um, so. And so, it, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where if some people have nukes, maybe you want everyone to have nukes, but it'd also be great if no one had nukes. It's like a collective action problem. Um, no one had nukes in the first place. Right. And this this sort of the, the power of the individual to uh, cause greater and greater harm or part of the country, part of the individual seems to only be growing. Um, so, um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, the phrase that's been going around a lot um, given the Israel stuff is when people tell you who they are, believe them. Uh, you know, Tanner Greer has chronicled how, um, you know, Chinese leaders or I think Z directly, um, have, have talked about, um, how their desire is to be more powerful than the United States and restore their, their formal glory, et, et cetera. Yeah. Which is always half made up because all this former glory bullshit is always like largely made up. But you, 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 you sympathize with the instinct that, Hey, we, we should take them literally when they say that. And they, they are, they, 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 <laughs> <we> are yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah. they're 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 coming, man. They're I don't know that they're going to attack Taiwan. I think right. the the more we beef up our deterrence, the less likely it is. I think there is a chance they will not attack Taiwan. At this point, I would give it a fifty fifty coin flip. But again, I'm not an expert, and I think don't know if experts could actually assign a better probability because there's just so many unknown unknowns here. Yeah. But you think the chances of getting a World War Three in the next like decade or or twenty years are pretty high? Yeah, yeah. Next decade, especially. If we make it through this decade, I think that our chances are a lot lower. 
Um, I think that China after this decade may calm down because their growth will be slow for like a long time. And because their population will shrink, their young population will really shrink. And then young people won't want to go to war because like there won't be any of them and they'll all need to like take care of their parents. Right. And, um, and I think that once you also, once you free, once you get to the brink of war and freeze in the status quo for a long time, people become comfortable with not going to war. So I think you saw that in the cold war, uh, you saw detente, right? You saw people get used to, to that. I think that that would set in again. Um, I also think that the coalition of powers of, of third powers, like India, I think India will be a lot more powerful in 10 years than it is today. And that will have an, you know, a impact on Chinese calculus. I think that 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 pushes us away from a war 10 years out if we make it that far. But it, <coughs> excuse me, it makes war more likely today because it means that China, you know, the, the reason that Germany went to war in World War I because they, they were very afraid that Russia was becoming rapidly more powerful. And if they waited to go to war, Russia would get so powerful that they could overwhelm Germany. And there may have been some truth to that. Now, no one knows. Um, it depends on whether there would have been a revolution, all the stuff. But Russia was getting more powerful rapidly in the few years before World War I. And that scared the hell out of Germany. And America is not getting more powerful. We're getting less powerful. But India is getting more powerful rapidly, right? And closer to the United States. And China might calculate that if it waits 10 years, India will be, A, much more powerful relative to China than it is now because it'll catch up. And... Somewhat, it won't catch up fully, obviously, but it will catch up somewhat, maybe. And then, um, and then, second of all, because India will be closer to the United States, and it will be like, okay, we can't wait for that, right? We can't wait for another couple of years of Ukraine war to unite Europe even more, so that Europe moves toward becoming like a real unified force in the world, right? We can't wait for Japan to rearm because Japan is rearming now, right? Japan boosted G defense spending to like over two percent of GDP, I think, and that's like higher than most of the NATO countries. And then like, it is a pacifist country no longer. They reinterpreted their constitution, uh, i.e. they decided to ignore it without amending it because laws are merely pieces of paper. <laughs> the, well, while, while we're on the Ukraine topic, you know, I, I saw or heard somewhere that um, you know, someone said that we're sort of slowing down funding. Um, do, do you think that we should be pushing for peace um, with and, and concede on not admitting Ukraine to NATO or What's your perspective on what should happen? Um, I don't think I don't think that Vladimir Putin is in a position where that will entice him. I think he is not. You know, the, these are these are things we tell ourselves we could do, sort of, to have the illusion of control. Um, people love the illusion of control, and uh, you know, I think a lot of people in tech industry watch our podcast. I think tech people are vulnerable to this because. America is the thing that protects the free enterprise tech industry and all, you know, all of that opportunity for tech people is protected by America. America is the locus of the tech industry. So we want, you know, everybody wants America to continue to be strong. Um, but then, but also there's this, there's this desire to think that, okay, we could just flip the switch and end the war in Ukraine. The United States can withdraw support, but Europe has now taken the lead. And so Europe uh, especially Germany is now increasing its support for Ukraine and ramping up even as America, you know, sort of, uh, decreases a bit and Europe, European, um, arms and armaments and money will be absolutely sufficient to keep Ukraine in war for as long as they want to stay in the war. So the United States, we can help more or we can not. And we can say, okay, 
you're on your own. We're going to go focus on Taiwan, which is what, you know, like Elbridge Colby wants to do. He wants to just say, buy Ukraine. We're going to go focus on Taiwan. That's not what I would do if I were in power, because I think that, you know, Ukraine's important and we need to keep some resources on it. But I do think everyone sort of agrees that this conflict is going to be Europeanized. And now that the war has united Europe as it hasn't been united since Charlemagne, who even knows ever like now that Europe is, is as united as it's ever been against Russia and is, is progressively realizing just how much money they're going to have to spend and how much industrial policy they're going to have to do to, to sustain the war effort, but they can, right? So like Europe has three times Russia's population easily or more, and it has um, many times Russia's GDP, right? They're much more and, and just much more technologically sophisticated, much more manufacturing capacity, you know, and, and a lot more people. And they can beat Russia. Obviously not if nukes start flying, you know, then the United States will get involved and nuke Russia. But, um, but Europe has its own nukes too. You know, France has nukes, Britain has nukes. Um, Germany has nukes that they call our nukes, right? Do you know that? No, I don't know. Yeah. Oh yeah. We have nukes in Germany. Um, uh, and they're called American nukes, right? But Germany understands the technology and has, owns the thing and has the launch code, right? Well, actually, let me check to see if we might've, did we pull those out? Um, we had these for many, many years and, and, and they're essentially German nukes, right? Okay. There's like 60 of them, but there's not that many, right? Yeah. We, we scaled them down, but there's still some. And so Europe has its own nukes. Europe can stand against Russia just fine if they have the will. Right. And, and maybe closing up back to the sort of Middle East topic, compare and contrast sort of the, the Biden, Obama, to the extent that they're similar, approach to the Middle East to the Trump, Kushner, um, like, or, or just the US approach to the last 10 years of Middle East. And, um, you know, where do you think it's going, going forward in terms of how we're going to engage? Oh, so, so Biden was effectively um, uh, continuing Trump's policy. So Trump uh, tried to make peace between the the Arab countries and Israel, and it in fact did succeed with a couple of these, like UAE and uh, and Sudan, and and maybe another I forget who they did. Um, but Saudi Arabia was the biggie, and when Saudi Arabia made peace with Israel, then that would be like all of the Sunni Western aligned Arab states would have made peace with Israel, and that's one reason Hamas attacked when it did, and Iran told Hamas to attack when it did, is because uh, they wanted to disrupt that, right? And they did, they did disrupt it, right? It would be bad optics for Saudi Arabia to make peace with Israel when Israel's bombing hospitals in Gaza. But it, Biden's policy was a continu direct continuation of Trump's policy. There's no change between them. There, there's, no, there's no daylight between Biden's Israel policy and Trump's Israel policy. You know, Biden giving six billion to Iran, and you know, some I know it's not that simple. And I think there might have been another ten billion somewhere. I'm trying to remember where where I heard that. But is, is that I feel like Israel would have been more isolation, you know, or, or Trump would have been more, um, you know, would not have done that. Is that do you sympathize with that? And is there what do you think of that? Um, I think that uh, yes, Trump would have. Um, Basically, Obama created this idea for this deal with Iran where Iran agrees not to make nuclear weapons, although they would retain the capability to, like Japan, right, if they needed to. So they, they just wouldn't actually do it. Uh, and, then, and then we would give them money and, and help them with their economy, which has been under sanctions for a long time. Uh, people forget that Iran has been suffering under U.S. sanctions for quite a long time, and it's made them suffer a lot. So the, the idea was we drop sanctions in exchange for them dropping this idea of, of nuclear power. 
That was the idea under Obama. That sort of fell through. Uh, Trump assassinated a um, uh, an Iranian leader, Qasem Soleimani. Uh, but then, you know, periodically made noises about restarting the Iran deal, and Biden has made noises about starting the Iran deal, and um, no one's actually doing it, and it's not clear whether Iran wants to start that deal. Um, and so, I think that essentially our policy is. Uh, it looks like a policy where we're doing something towards Iran, but it's actually a policy where we're doing nothing towards Iran, cloaked in a policy of doing something. We're actually doing nothing. We're not really doing the deal. We're not really, you know, we're not really fighting them. We're not really doing anything. We assassinated one guy and then, and then, you know, left. We, it, it's the illusion of motion. It's the illusion of, of us actually accomplishing anything on Iran. Um, the truth is that what we really just do is that hope, hope Iran leaves people alone. <laughs> That's what we're really doing. We're coming up a, a bit of time. So I want to be mindful. Is there, is there anything we haven't yet covered, um, that we should close with, or do you think this has been sufficiently? Absolutely. Uh, I talked a lot about what the, what companies need to do to prepare for a possible uh, war with China, but the government needs to do things to prepare too. And it's doing some things, but what it's not doing is resuscitating the defense industrial base. And uh, we should definitely get Chris Power on the podcast. He's uh, the CEO of Hadrian. Do you know him? I'm, I'm an investor in Hadrian. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll, oh. <laughs> well, there you go. Um, so we need to get Chris on the podcast because he um, turned me on to a lot of this and has been explaining to me what a lot of these problems are. Yeah. And so I'm channeling him on a lot of these things. Yeah. We'll get him on. I'm also staying at, at Delian's uh, house right now in, in Miami. Uh, so we can get him on at some point too. Oh. Well, why don't we just get Delian on? We can have him on in real, in physical space. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's at the Founders Fund office at, at, at this exact moment. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get him on at, at some point too. Um, cool. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll put a cliffhanger for a future episode with, uh, with both Chris and Delian, as well as uh, next week, I think we'll cover uh, Mark Andreessen's uh, Techno Optimist Manifesto and uh, an upcoming post awesome. you, you, you have in the works too. Um, Noah, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaterpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at terpentine.co, and let's partner together. <laughs>